Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino, and today I'm joined by two of my colleagues here at FIRE, Robert Shibley and Samantha Harris, uh, two colleagues that you all are well familiar with because they've appeared on the podcast many times at this point. Robert is, of course, the executive director of FIRE. It's my boss. And Samantha is a senior fellow at FIRE, and she is also an attorney at Mudrick Zucker, where she represents students and faculty members in disciplinary hearings. Robert and Sam, welcome back onto the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. So today, I kind of want to just do a roundup of what's been a crazy summer at FIRE. I mean, 2020 has been quite the year in all regards. Uh, But at FIRE, you know, we let off the summer in May uh, with the finalization of the Title IX regulations. And tomorrow, actually, we're recording this podcast. It's 10.45 a.m., uh, on Thursday, August 13th, tomorrow, August 14th, is the day we have kind of all been waiting for, the day that these new Title IX protections for free speech and due process go into effect. Now, there are a lot of legal wranglings about these regulations, and you never know what might what shenanigans might happen between the time we record this podcast and when they're set to go into effect tomorrow. But Robert, do you want to give us an update as to what's been happening over the summer? Yeah. And where things stand now? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the opponents of the uh, the new regulations, which um, both put in a Supreme Court approved standard for uh, sexual harassment, which is protective of free speech. That's uh, what we call the Davis standard, if you hear us talking about that. Um, and also a number of really important protections uh, for people who are accused of uh, violating Title IX policies. Uh, These protections include things like an explicit presumption of innocence or being able to face your accuser and cross-examine, you know, really basic things like that. And things that colleges and universities, for the most part, hadn't been promising those accused on campus for years. That's right. You know, as I as I love to remind people, more than 70 percent of the top 50 U.S. news schools uh, didn't even explicitly say you were innocent until proven guilty if you were accused, um, which is really, uh, you know, square one of trying to put together a, a justice system uh, is really innocent until proven guilty. And they didn't even bother doing that. So that can that's that's a good indicator of the contempt with which schools uh, tend to show uh, or tend to view these protections. Um, and and we're, before we continue, we should just kind of quickly define Title IX. It's a it's a law passed in the '70s that essentially says that people need to be treated uh, fairly uh, based on the, based on their sex. It bans sex discrimination in federally funded education programs, which includes uh, because of student loans and because of aid to K through twelve schools. It includes uh, pretty much every public K through twelve school, and then every public and virtually every private um, uh, college or university. Yeah, and, and sex discrimination is held to also constitute uh, sexual harassment. As That's well. right, sexual harassment, and it also uh, now covers uh, because of a recent Supreme Court case, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity. Mm-hmm. 
Um, okay, so, so with those caveats out of the way. <laughs> so yeah, so there, there have been um, the opponents of the this you know speech protective standard and these due process regulations and and guarantees um, have filed four lawsuits, uh, four federal lawsuits in four different. Uh, districts, one in Maryland, one in the District of Columbia, one in the Southern District of New York, which is New York City, um, and one in the District of Massachusetts. And uh, this week, um, because the regulations go into effect, uh, they uh, three out of four of these cases had uh, asked for a preliminary injunction that would prevent the regulations from going into effect tomorrow and on August 14th, which is the date. And this week, so far, we've seen uh, two of those uh, preliminary injunctions be denied, uh, the one in New York by a uh, federal judge appointed by President Clinton and uh, one in D.C., uh, which was uh, the quote unquote big one that involved uh, 17 uh, Democratic state attorneys general and the, and the District of Columbia attorney general. Um, and that was denied by a uh, President Trump appointee. So we have sort of a... Uh, uh, bipartisan, uh, uh, you know, shoot down of the idea that uh, these regulations shouldn't uh, be allowed to go into effect. Um, so unless there's a ruling out of Massachusetts uh, today, which is possible, um, but probably not that likely, uh, tomorrow uh, these protections will go into effect. And that means that university policies as of tomorrow uh, need to integrate these protections uh, for people accused of uh, Title IX violations um, or they are uh, out of compliance uh, with federal regulations. And ultimately, uh, if they were to refuse to get into compliance, they could be uh, stripped of their federal funding, uh, which is the death sentence to um, you know, most schools. Uh, Harvard or Yale might survive it, but uh, because you would lose student loan funding, um, it really is a very harsh penalty. So harsh that that's never actually happened. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's never happened in 30, you know, 30 some odd years. So the odds that any school would actually uh, go that far are, are basically zero. Um, but what it does mean is that schools do have to take these regulations seriously. Yeah. And have they been doing that, Sam? Uh, have you noticed that schools have started to change their policies? I mean, they have to have prepared for the policies to go into effect tomorrow. It's not like you just start implementing policies tomorrow. Yes. I mean, you know, schools are not yet applying these policies to their new cases, but, you know, schools are, as far as I'm aware, and in, in terms of the way they communicate with students, in the process of revising their policies. Um, there have also been, you know, it, particularly with my practice here in Pennsylvania, um, there have been court decisions that have also required schools to update their policies. So, uh, you know, I think that we can expect to see a lot of changes coming in the fall. Now, it'll be re it remains to be seen what those will look like because Princeton, for example, um, has adopted one policy that complies with the new Title IX regulations, and that's for only those uh acts of misconduct that are defined, uh, you know, under the regs as violations of Title IX, and then a much more expansive um, list of acts of misconduct that the, the university wants to investigate on its own as sexual misconduct are covered by uh, another policy. So that may be something uh, that we need to look out for um, as schools try to find ways to get around, um, you know, what they view as requirements they don't want to have to comply with, such as providing hearings and cross-examination. Yeah, that's. I actually saw that come across the news, and I'd been meaning to get uh, in touch with you, Sam, to kind of discuss it, because I don't understand what that means. So does it mean that if a student is charged uh, with sexual harassment, 
the only thing they need to do to do an end round um, around the protections that the new regs provide is to just not call it a Title IX violation? Well, my understanding, and I don't have the policy up in front of me, so I don't want to speak beyond uh, what I know. But, you know, one of the big complaints about the new regulations is that um, jurisdiction under Title IX is limited to uh, conduct occurring within a school's education program or activity. And that includes, you know, student organization facilities, fraternity houses, and things like that that are owned by the university. But uh, it doesn't necessarily include off-campus conduct. And so one of the big complaints was that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, sexual harassment and assault that may take place in off-campus housing and things like that uh, wouldn't be covered. Uh, and so my understanding is that this policy creates a more expansive definition of prohibited conduct that includes that type of off-campus misconduct and that it is covered by another policy. Hmm. It's um, the, the reason for that limitation and that people are complaining about is actually it's in the, the text of Title IX itself uh, that was passed back in uh, the early 1970s says that it's in federally funded education programs. And so I think the, the very solid logic of this is that, well, if it's not in there, we don't actually have jurisdiction uh, over that. So, um, you know, there there are those complaints about it, but there's also the fact that uh, a big part of the reason that schools, um, you know, and Title IX doesn't expect them to have, uh, the, I should say the law itself doesn't expect them to have, uh, you know, policies to necessarily to address that is that uh, if it's off campus and has not under the control of the school, it's very unreasonable to expect the school to be able to do any kind of effective job in finding out what actually happened there. I mean, we've had uh, instances of schools attempting to adjudicate sexual harassment that happened, you know, while both parties were abroad in another country um, and that sort of thing. It's just the, you know, the uh, the ambit of, you know, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a, you know, a mid-tier state university, uh, you know, just doesn't have that much influence over the government of the Republic of France or something. <laughs> like that. So, uh, you know, I, I think it, it wisely recognizes uh, some of the limitations uh, of schools, I think one thing that the the system that Princeton and maybe some other schools will try to turn to uh, really does the message that it really sends is that these, I mean, these unjust kangaroo courts are really, really important to schools, and I I think it's inescapable that the reason for that um, is political, um, and it's about making a political statement rather than about. Uh, students. I've just, we've, we've seen too much of this and we've had too much discussion of this over the last 10 years to pretend that, um, you know, schools are on the up and up uh, when it comes to uh, these kind of protections. And, and Sam has all kinds of horror stories she can tell you, but I think the idea of putting faith in schools to adjudicate uh, these um, really sensitive uh, cases without the, the protections they've been denying for so long um, has repeatedly proven to be a terrible idea um, that, you know, gives us basically um, an, an unjust system that is dependent on the political whims of those in power on campus. Um, and the fact that schools are like Princeton are going out of their way to do that, I think shows some really serious, uh, you know, moral turpitude on their part. I mean, I, I, I have Moral turpitude. Feelings. Good line. I, I, I have very strong feelings about this. They are not. They have not proven that they are going to make an effort to be fair about things. And now they are trying to again warp policies so that they can punish people for 
uh, things that, um, you know, are often protected speech, um, or often, you know, very highly politicized, uh, ideas about consent, like affirmative consent and that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, frankly, I think it's disgraceful that, that's ha that this is happening. Um, and I would be happy to debate, uh, you know, the schools on their records on this, but I can guarantee you that none of them would agree to do it. And if I were them, I wouldn't agree either. Well, one of the things that we've learned in the work that we've done with free speech on campus, of course, is that even when you are required by law, by say the First Amendment, uh, to provide students with certain rights, uh, colleges and universities will just ignore it and violate those rights anyway. And that's you know why an organization like Fire needs to exist. So while tomorrow, August fourteenth, is a big day for us, uh, we've been fighting for this day since April of twenty eleven. Uh, you know, the, the fight won't be over. Of course, we will, we will still have to work to ensure that universities respect the law and that students and faculty members are accorded, uh, the rights that they're, um, given under the law. Real, really important thing is that what schools are missing here is accountability. They literally nothing bad ever happens to the people who make these unjust decision and ruin people's lives. There is a total lack of accountability on the part of university administrators in this. Uh, were I them, I would be fighting very hard um, as well. Well, I'd like to think I wouldn't be, but I can understand why you would fight uh, to have a job where you have no accountability for making unjust um, or you know morally wrong decisions. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to accept it. And I think a, a really important part of these regulations, the beginning of accountability starting to finally come to people who you know, with very good reason, think that no matter what they do, they will never have to actually face any consequences for it, no matter how bad their decisions are, um, no matter, you know, no matter what they do. I think this accountability is very, very important. And frankly, I think it's overdue. And I think um, universities have uh, squandered a lot, maybe most of the goodwill that they've built up over the last few decades um, in terms of being trustworthy. And I think there's probably going to be more of this because I don't think uh, people are willing to uh, simply accede uh, to whatever, uh, you know, a, a university president, uh, dean, uh, student life, et cetera, says anymore. And, and I think that's good. I don't think they should be acceding to it. Well, well on the topic of accountability, that just got me thinking. I mean, Sam, you work on the due process litigation database that we have here at FIRE, and which is a tremendous resource to seeing what, what the courts have been doing uh, on these topics. Let's say a student successfully sues their university for a violation of their, their rights um, under Title IX or uh, under principles of due process. Are, how are the administrators who violated those rights held accountable? Or does the you know, doctrine of qualified immunity protect them along with the university's insurance policies? Yeah, unfortunately, qualified immunity is a huge hurdle in these cases, as it is to, to justice in so many cases involving and we should probably we should probably define qualified immunity for yeah, some sorry. of our listeners. So qualified immunity is a judicially created doctrine under which, um, you know, so there's a statute at Section 1983. It's a civil rights statute that allows... Um, people who have been harmed by state officials whose constitutional rights have been violated by state officials acting under color of state law to bring a federal lawsuit for damages against those state officials. 
Um, and the, the courts have created a doctrine known as qualified immunity, um, under which those officials can only be held personally liable, uh, meaning they will individually have to pay you know, money out of their own pockets if the constitutional right they violated is clearly established. And this has become an almost impossible hurdle to overcome. Um, so, you know, for example, there was a case in the Tenth Circuit where a student who had posted, uh, he was a medical student, and he posted an anti-abortion post on Facebook that was completely constitutionally protected, but it was intemperate, right? And the, the school punished him for it. Um, and it was a public school, a University of New Mexico, I believe, um, but the, the public school um, punished him for it, and he brought a First Amendment lawsuit. Uh, and now it is, to me, very clearly established that it violates the First Amendment to punish someone for the content of a Facebook post in which they are discussing their sincerely held beliefs on important political issues. Um, but the court granted the administrators qualified immunity basically holding that because there was no clearly established precedent about the free speech rights of students in professional schools uh, involving online off-campus speech, that the right was not clearly established. And the problem, there's sort of a, a double problem, and I hope I'm not getting too far into the legal weeds here. But no, another, I think our listeners will find this interesting. Another problem with the doctrine of qualified immunity is that courts are given a choice. Under Supreme Court precedent, they have the choice of whether to do the First Amendment analysis before the clearly established analysis. So they can do one of two things. They could hold that you know, yes, a right was violated, but no, the right wasn't clearly established. Or they can say the right wasn't clearly established, so we don't actually need to answer the question of whether the right was violated. And more often than not, they choose the second. They do the clearly established analysis and they avoid uh, answering the constitutional question, which creates this additional problem because how can anything ever be clearly established if? constitutional precedent is not being made. So not only does qualified immunity serve as a barrier to holding these officials accountable, it also creates um, a, a, a system in which it's very difficult for rights to ever become clearly established. If you're a cynical anarcho-libertarian who thinks that the government is just out to protect itself and the powerful, qualified immunity is pretty much, you know, evidence, you know, exhibit A uh, in in doing that because of the way that it is um, applied, it does end up being a, a get out of jail free car for for so many people. And the you know I'm not an expert on how this applies in the police context, but uh, some of the decisions about you know the way that uh, the police are allowed to treat uh, suspects and that sort of thing will really curl your hair when when you see how into the weeds courts will get about uh, establishing you know what is uh, clearly established and what is not. I mean, it, it, it really is, um, you know, if you want to drill all the way down, um, you know, every, every instance of everything is unique. And so um, ultimately it really is, uh, it really does end up turning into a um, sort of the judge's opinion um, on whether or not they think this person should get away um, on a personal level with this particular uh, civil rights offense. And Robert, uh, I who, have curly hair, so I'm not sure how I feel about using the phrase <laughs> curl your hair to, to well, refer to no a negative hair. consequence. But um, I have no hair, so I have no sympathy for you, but go ahead. 
Nico, I also wanted to sort of address your question beyond just the issue of qualified immunity, because, you know, a lot of these students who have been denied due process have brought lawsuits, um, and not just constitutional due process, because these are students at private universities often, too, and they're bringing suits um, both for uh, sort of reverse sex discrimination, but also breach of contract when schools don't follow their own policies. Um, So, uh, you know, these cases, there have been several decisions, including one that I alluded to earlier in the Third Circuit um, at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. There was one at um, the University of Michigan. There have been a few sort of seminal cases where courts have issued pretty sweeping precedent that has really, uh, you know, improved the rights of students across the board. But for the most part, you know, these suits can be a way for an individual student to get justice. Very often there's a settlement. You know, if the case gets far enough in litigation that it survives a motion to dismiss, very often the university will settle the case, which may lead to a positive result for an individual student, such as their record being cleared. But in terms of really holding these officials in accountable for their malfeasance, you know, the courts haven't really been able to do that. You don't see huge jury verdicts of the sort that would really be necessary to send a message um, to administrators, to universities. So, you know, I mean, I do think the judicial remedy is very important and it can be very useful, as I said, for individual students. But I think both in the uh, due process and in the free speech context, which I know we want to also transition into, this lack of accountability, um, both financial and sort of moral accountability for what universities are doing to these students and faculty is really a huge and ongoing issue and one that needs to be addressed. Well, I remember when I was uh, at our co-founder Harvey Silverglade's house, what was that earlier this year, last year, all the years are blending together at this point. Uh, we were talking about the 20th anniversary of fire. And he said, one of the things that really helped get to get universities to be held accountable was to name names. So to the extent that there was an administrator who was violating a student or faculty's member's rights, he said, we would put that in our press release. You know, we wanted to hold that person personally accountable for the violation of rights. And, you know, a lot of people in higher ed and most of us anyway, are, are care about our careers and, and uh, you don't want to come up in a Google search result as violating someone's rights. So that's one way in the court of public opinion that FIRE, since our founding in 1999, according to Harvey, has, uh, has held folks accountable. But Sam, you mentioned wanted to transition in, into free speech as well. This has been a big summer generally for free speech. Um, uh, not always in a good way, though. Uh, Title IX is going to give students certain pro- uh, free speech protections that we've long fought for. But the month of June, to put it in context for our listeners, uh, summer is kind of usually a down period for fire, naturally so. Uh, school is out of session. Uh, so in 2013, we had 27 case submissions in June. Um, 2017, we had 66, 2018, 38, 2019, 59. This June, we had 289 case submissions, 289 uh, examples of students or faculty members coming to fire for help because they felt their rights were violated. The focus and interest and need for fire's help uh, over the summer has also been reflected in just our website traffic. Uh, Our traffic in the month of July was higher than it's been at any other point in the past year and a half. And again, when you consider that summer and July in particular is usually our down month, uh, it's quite extraordinary. So (laughs) Robert, You've been doing this for 20 years, 17 years, somewhere around there. 
Uh, why was this summer different? Well, I mean, the, uh, the words cancel culture spring to mind. Um, you know, I know it's, it's on everybody's lips right now and, and there's a lot of disagreement about what it means and, um, you know, whether or not it's a good thing and, and what even counts, um, as cancel culture. But, um, the, the main driver of these cases coming in was, uh, students who were facing some sort of, um, either, um, inquisition, some inquiry, um, you know, potentially actually being expelled or seeing, uh, their admissions, uh, rescinded, uh, from schools, um, because of things they had said that were critical, um, on social media of either, uh, George Floyd of black lives matter of, uh, the protests and, or, um, riots and looting, um, and, that was really the driver um, of those cases. And, and I think that's uh, largely because, um, you know, I, I think some people know this, but maybe not everybody does, is that um, there, there was actually sort of a coordinated, you know, loosely coordinated effort, as far as I could tell, to actually dox people, um, you know, during uh, this time. And, um, you know, if somebody were to say something critical, the way it would work um, is you would go back, look for, you know, and you could see this in some Twitter timelines. Like the, it's sort of interesting to see, I mean, interesting and sort of a, you know, terrifying way of how this works, sort of crowdsourcing research into this person's background and their uh, associates, you know, and friends and family members, uh, trying to find other things, uh, that would potentially be, um, you know, counted as racist or sexist or bigoted or, you know, what have you. Um, and then that would be put together. Um, and then, uh, people would start in a coordinated way, um, targeting, uh, the school, uh, they went to and saying, Hey, do you really want, uh, this person representing X university? Uh, you know, we saw people, uh, be kicked off of teams. Um, you know, we've seen a couple of expulsions. We've seen, um, you know, mostly universities saying, oh, they're looking into the issue. They've referred it to discipline. Um, so a lot of these things are probably still out there in the air. And uh, one of the you know really tough things is because of the the effect of these things and, and the way it affects people's reputations and really just the um, the idea that there's people who are out there that you don't know that are sort of dedicated to, to getting you and making your life uh, worse. Um, uh, a lot of these folks, you know, while they might come to us, don't, you know, they don't want to make a bigger issue out of it. They're, they're looking for help from somewhere, but um, you know, the, at the same time, the very fact of fighting back brings you to more notice from the same people that you're afraid of. And so um, that mobbing effect really is, um, a very uh, strong and powerful force. And, um, you know, I think we'll be seeing probably some of that revived um, as school opens up, although maybe not in the same uh, manner. But at the same time, we've also got a, a very highly contested and, and strong uh, an election with a lot of strong feelings behind it. We've got the continuing COVID crisis. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of stresses, probably more on the, the college scene uh, than we've seen since uh, the late 1960s. Um, yeah. 
I, I always liked, you know, people would say, oh, how can it get any worse? And I'd say, well, back in the late 60s, there was something like one of the years, I think it was 68 or 69, there were something like 40 bombings on college campuses. Um, so I was telling people, well, it could get worse. Well, I, I think we're, we're I mean, obviously we're not at 40 bombings level, but with the violence and that sort of thing that, you know, we're seeing thankfully mostly off campus, um, we're probably closer to that now than, than we've ever been uh, since I've started 17 years ago. I want to talk about some of these cases because some of them are just truly extraordinary, even um, you know, over the course of the past 10 years that I've been here at FIRE. Uh, there's one at Fordham involving a Chinese-American immigrant, a student named Austin Tong, and he posted on Instagram in the wake of the George Floyd protests, he posted a photo of himself uh, holding a gun in his backyard. It was also the 31st anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, and that's why I was posting the photo. photo. Um, but he 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 had another post at around the same time again at the in the wake of the George Floyd protest, uh, in which he criticized what he had seen as a nonchalant response to the homicide of retired St. Louis Police Chief David Dorn. And as we all know, um, you know, one of the things that can land you in hot water on college campuses is supporting the police at a time when the overwhelming um, you know kind of opinion seems to be that the police need reforming um, and. This, this student, Austin Tong, was saying, you know, we should care about police officers who are murdered, you know. Um, but that was seen as a criticism of Black Lives Matter. And there was a strong response after seeing that and his poster of him holding a gun on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square uh, that there were calls for him to be punished at Fordham. And uh, in response to these posts, Fordham found him responsible for violating its policies, prohibiting threats and intimidation and or bias and or hate crimes. Uh, and there was one article in the student newspaper, the Fordham Observer, that I thought really was kind of emblematic of this cancel culture that uh, so many people are talking about this summer. The article was titled, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Austin Tong? And the writer had a quote that said, Tong's actions are counterintuitive to Fordham's reputation as a business. And as such, he should be metaphorically fired from his position as a member of the Fordham community. Uh, you know, you could replace canceled with fired in that case. Uh, but it just goes to show how, how these communities are just trying to police thought and opinion and to try and make it conform with whatever the prevailing orthodoxy at the time might be. Now, Austin Tong is unique, uh, as you were talking about, Robert, insofar as he's fighting back and he hasn't apologized. He came to fire for help. He also hired an attorney suing the school. Uh, he's appeared and done media interviews about it. Uh, but as you said, there are a lot of people who are afraid of uh, what could happen to them in their careers or the names getting dragged through the mud or what might happen on social media. Sam, there was uh, one case at the University of North Texas that you broke the news about in National Review. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah. So there was a um, music theorist who gave the plenary address uh, named, uh, this, this person's name is Philip Ewell. He gave the plenary address at the meeting last year of the Society of Music Theory or Society for Music Theory. And that address was about how essentially uh, music theory could be seen through a white racial frame and it particularly called out um, this very famous music theorist, Heinrich Schenker, um, for his racism and for sort of this placing this white racial frame on, um, on music theory. 
And there's actually a center at the University of North Texas in their music department, Center for Schenkerian Studies, devoted to the study of Heinrich Schenker and his music theory. Um, and this center is headed by this professor, Timothy Jackson, who also runs uh, the Journal of Schenkerian Studies, which is a publication of the Center for Schenkerian Studies. Um, and if this is all sounding very obscure, it is. Um, and most people, as I pointed out in my National Review article, had probably never heard of it before this uh, controversy came to light. But uh, in the Journal of Schenkerian Studies, um, the Journal of Schenkerian Studies solicited and then published a series of responses to Philip Ewell's plenary address. Some of those responses were favorable, some of them were critical, um, and Timothy Jackson himself published one that was critical, challenging the idea that Schenker was himself a racist and discussing the way that Schenker's views had evolved. Schenker was Jewish uh, and lived in Germany in the years leading up to the Holocaust and how the rise of Nazism may have changed his views on race at the time. And, and I hate to interrupt Sam, but this guy was, you know, we're arguing over whether this guy was racist or not. This guy was born in 1868. So just to give you a, a perspective, this is not a person who is alive right now that we're debating. These, these folks are debating about a guy who died in 1935. But go ahead. So... Anyway, after this issue came out, uh, it received a very critical response. People, uh, you know, began denouncing it. And of course, predictably, not just announcing it, but calling for an investigation into the journal, saying, you know, it must have been, uh, you know, it must not have gone through the appropriate peer review. Never mind the fact that this sort of, you know, call for responses is uh, is a standard practice and is not sort of the, the sort of thing that would be typically put through peer review. These aren't studies. They're, these are just fellow scholars responses to the address. Um, and so, of course, you know, you have the predictable calls for um, not only investigation, but from a group of graduate students at UNT explicitly pretty much calling for Timothy Jackson to be fired. And of course, these controversies never end there. Universities never seem to have the courage to stand up and say, uh, actually, this is protected speech and there's nothing here to investigate. Uh, instead, they inevitably capitulate to the mob and so predictably have launched an investigation. Um, and, you know, Professor Jackson is currently being represented by a good friend of mine. He, so he has an attorney um, and he is fighting back, but it's been very difficult for him. And I think, you know, uh, we are trying to sort of, you know, fire and other organizations are trying to uh, create a culture in which people can speak out and fight back against these sort of cancellation efforts um, and not feel perhaps so alone. But I think right now it really is, you know, people, when they decide to fight back, they really feel largely very alone. It's very isolating and very few people have the stomach for it, you know, um, and that's that's part of the problem. Well, one of the things that struck me about the University of North Texas, and it, I believe it's the music school of mm -hmm. which uh, Professor Timothy Jackson is a part of that is launching the investigation. One of the things that stuck out to me about this statement announcing the investigation, and I don't have it in front of me, but it, I, if I'm remembering it correctly, they said something like, we're launching this investigation to show our support for racial justice or a fight against it. It wasn't even, we're launching this investigation because we think someone might have done something wrong here. It was like they launched the investigation because they thought that that's something they needed to do in order to show solidarity with uh, some sort of outside cause. Am, am I remembering that statement correctly, Sam? I also don't have it in front of me, but I do believe, uh, it, you know, I don't know whether the 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 
line about solidarity came from the university's investigation or for um, from sort of the calls on the university to investigate. Um, but either way, the idea, I mean, it, it all comes down to this sort of idea of appeasing the mob. I mean, you know, I'll reference- Oh, here this- it is. Here it is. Uh, uh, from your from your op-ed in the in National Review, John Richmond announced that UNT is opening that investigation in the name of, quote, reaffirming our dedication to combating racism on campus and across all academic disciplines. Right. I mean, this is all about appeasing the mob. I mean, I have a case right now um, that, it, if anything, reflects, you know, this this sort of appeasement mentality. It's this one. Um, you know, there was a professor uh, who posted some tweets to his personal Twitter account that, that you know, people became very upset about and, you know, fire him started trending on Twitter and people started protesting both at his home and um, in, in front of the office of the university president. And the university president pretty much explicitly said, you know, in a, in a disappointed way, you know, the Constitution, we can't fire him for this. The Constitution protects his right uh, to say these things, and that's the law. But then, just days later, announced uh, really the opening of what can only be called a witch hunt into this professor, saying if anybody has experienced, you know, bias or discrimination in his classroom, please come forward with accusations. So you have this oh, professor. That's like, that's so, that's so Soviet. It's like, it, I've shown you the man, now find me the crime. Well, exactly. And so, you know, this is a faculty member who teaches, he's a psych professor, and he teaches some very controversial courses on sexual behavior and cross-cultural psychology. So there was plenty of material. So this call for, uh, you know, for complaints was issued. Uh, Hundreds of of people who had never come forward before. In fact, you know, uh, this professor has gone back through years and years of course reviews. None of these allegations were ever mentioned. You know, this is someone who'd received for years outstanding teaching reviews. Suddenly, hundreds of complaints come forward, and the university is subjecting him to really what can only be called an inquisition. You know, he had a four-hour meeting last week in which they just asked him verbatim about hundreds of accusations made against him, making no effort whatsoever to weed out accusations that were exclusively related to uh, his choice of teaching material, making no effort to consolidate duplicative allegations. So, you know, there was there was four hours of this. And at which point he said, you know, hey, uh, you know, I'm getting pretty tired here. Are we almost done? And we learned that we weren't even halfway done. So tomorrow he's got another five hour inquisition um, to ostensibly finish up um, this this process. But, you know, it's just insane. And it's very difficult for me to imagine many people being able to withstand that kind of pressure. And when I think about, you know, would he speak out again? Would anyone who knows what happened to him for speaking out speak out? You know, the, the universities are really and I think this goes back to that lack of accountability. They're brazen. They know they can get away with these things. They know very few people are going to challenge them. Um, and they really act like sort of the, the kings of their own little fiefdoms. Yeah. yeah. I may have just horribly mixed metaphors there. I don't know. <laughs> I, here I rise in defense of attorneys, uh, you know, which is never a popular thing to do. But one point I like to make, and which frankly these days can't be made often enough, is that one of the fundamental lessons of Anglo-American jurisprudence uh, that we've learned um, over really a thousand years of experience, these things aren't necessarily intuitive, but that it's that when you have an investigation or when you're engaging in some sort of disciplinary process, whatever it is, uh, the inquiry has to be about the actual person and the thing that is being investigated and can't be about making some sort of um, societal statement. And, you know, that's 
you know, frankly, it's the lesson people don't like to think about it, but it's a lesson behind uh, the book To Kill a Mockingbird, which is so powerful for so many of us going there uh, or who have gone to law school is the idea that like the very idea that the UNT music department would say that they're going to open this to show their commitment to racial justice or, you know, however, however it is they put it. The only reason to actually investigate a person, the only way that you can do it that's not prejudicial um, is to actually open it because you think they did something wrong. Like they individually did it. You can't hold somebody accountable for what somebody who is not them thinks or did. And when you get away from that, um, injustice happens immediately. And, and one thing I'll say about the legal system is the legal system is very good about trying to filter that out. It's not always successful, but it makes really Herculean efforts to do so um, in a way that uh, university administrators just simply aren't trained to do and don't even think about. I don't think it occurred uh, to the dean at UNT that there would be any problem with saying that, but that's literally the same argument for um, you know giving people show trials, like you mentioned, for uh, making a societal statement by uh, you know um, hanging people uh, without benefit of trial because you don't like you know what whatever it is that what they are supposed to have done says about uh, your society. And so um, the fact that you know again we're I guess accountability is maybe the theme here, but. Um, you know, people don't even think about what it is they're instituting here and the sort of nightmares uh, that it's taken us a thousand, literally, I'm not exaggerating, like Magna Carta to now, practically a thousand years to realize that this isn't the right way to run a society. There's um, there's another case out of Tulane University and you know, Robert, you talking about how people are being investigated to make a statement rather th than things they actually did. Uh, at Tulane, there was an event that was supposed to happen, I believe on August 6th, involving a author named Edward, Edward Ball, who wrote an anti-racist book called Life of a Klansman, A Family History of White Supremacy. And it was really his effort to come to grips with his ancestors' history, historical involvement uh, with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and, and it's, of course, critical of that involvement. Uh, but that event was canceled after the student government claimed that the event was not only inappropriate, but violent towards the experience and work of black people in the Tulane community in our country. And I'm quoting them there. And something else that stood out to me there is just how it, 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 the, the criticism and the call for canceling the event didn't even really bear any resemblance to the truth. Like, so they, they wrote the Dean and um, some of the leaders in the college at Tulane and said, instead of investing in speakers like Edward Ball, who are closely related to Klansmen, the School of Liberal Arts should prioritize uplifting Black voices, amplify the experience of Black, Indigenous, people of color. Like, Edward Ball, I don't even know that he knows his ancestors who are Klansmen. And to say that this anti-racist man is closely related to Klansmen as if he, he holds those beliefs... Uh, just doesn't even make any sense to me or compute to me. Like it's another example. I mean, that's an example of the idea of blood guilt, right? That the, the guilt for doing something actually transmits in your blood. Again, this is actually a very natural thing, a way for people to think. I think it, it, you know, throughout history, it, that's been an important concept, but it's one of the ones that I, I guess I and, and other people who are trained as lawyers in, you know, 20th and 21st century America thought we'd gotten over the idea, um, that idea. And it's actually, um, it's what, something they do in North Korea. Like if, if one of your relatives tries to leave the country, then your family is punished as if 
the, their guilt is the same as yours. That's right. Um, and it, it's actually, it all stems from, um, it's interesting because it all stems from the same, the very same idea behind the problem that they're fighting, which is a big part of the, you know, may, maybe the biggest part of the problem with racism, if you think about it, is that the injustice of racism comes in when you are applying a stereotype, you're applying a prejudice, uh, that is, you have prejudged someone based not on what they did, but what you think about that person or people who are like that person or maybe the ancestors of that person, et cetera. It's an unjust thing. It, it, it rubs people. I mean, people intuitively find that to be unjust when you are being judged for something that you personally did not do. It's a big part of the reason that racism is so morally wrong. And yet it's the, the same principle behind it is now being applied um, by universities and, you know, by other forces in society. Um, and it's, it's really very corrupting and, and I think leads to um, a lot of the foment that we're seeing right now. Well, it has me worried too. Uh, our yeah. colleagues, Greg Lukianoff and uh, Adam Goldstein have an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this morning uh, in which they say that, you know, free speech culture, regardless of what free speech law says is important because the, the culture that we're, you know, raising our children and um, educating our students in right now, you know, could erode those legal protections that we've laboriously um, worked to put in place over the past century, uh, because these students, of course, and these young people are going to become judges and lawyers and uh, policymakers and, and just voting. Yeah. And voters. <laughs> and if that culture is gone, uh, the law can't protect us. It's that learn in hand state. You know, no, no paper out there can, you know, protect your rights. If the, the I, I forget what exactly what it is, if the uh, spirit of liberty dies yeah. uh, in the hearts of men and women. So uh, yeah, if it's, liberty it's, lies in the hearts of men and women, you know, when it dies there, no law, no constitution can save it. Um, there we think, go. You know, it's, it's, it's a great quote and it's one that should be uh, the forefront of all of our minds right now, I think. I want to quickly run through uh, three other cases. I'm just going to kind of Gatling gun uh, to kind of hammer home at how how astounding this summer has been as far as our work goes. Uh, and then, Robert, I want to kind of close with what I think is kind of uh, one of the most tragic cases that we've had uh, this summer. And I know it is personal to you, but these three other cases, we had two at UCLA, one involving a professor, an Air Force veteran who was referred for investigation after he simply read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. And he was referred for investigation there because that letter, of course, uses racial slurs in Martin Luther King's relaying kind of the treatment that Black people in the South were experiencing. But his department chair also faulted him for showing portions of a documentary that included graphic images and descriptions of lynching, as well as this sort of narration that as the chair put it, quoted the N-word in explaining the history of lynching. So this professor wasn't even using the words as a pejorative. He was just quoting history, essentially, and, and one of the most famous letters from the civil rights movement, and he was referred to investigation for that. We also had a professor at UCLA who was suspended, as a professor Gordon Klein, uh, for declining to alter exam schedules and grading practices uh, for black students in the midst of the uh, George Floyd protests. And there was a talk about coordinated efforts to cancel someone. There was a, there was a change.org petition uh, that garnered 20,000 signatures for UCLA to fire him. And then uh, there's also another case, uh, not really a case, but just kind of indicative of the times we live in at Syracuse, 
where a student, uh, Adriana San Marco, was fired from her job as a columnist at the student newspaper, The Daily Orange, uh, when she dismissed the notion of institutional racism in an opinion piece for uh, a separate conservative website. This wasn't even an opinion piece for the student newspaper. And the editor there kind of justified it by saying that these opinions are out of bounds. So I guess there are some opinions that are out of bounds when you're writing for the student newspaper. But that kind of struck me because I was a student newspaper at the Indiana Daily Student when I was a student there. And they're just kind of purging people who don't conform to the um, the orthodox on campus now. But there was one professor uh, at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, who for a decade now has been fighting against uh, conformity of orthodoxy and fighting to defend his right to academic freedom uh, and to his opinion. And, and unfortunately, uh, we lost Professor Mike Adams last month uh, to suicide. And, and Robert, you had written about all that Mike Adams had done for the cause of uh, free speech, but also due process over the past decade. So I kind of want to close by uh, sharing his story, if you would. Yeah, Mike Adams um, was someone actually, he, he ended up fight having to fight uh, for more than a decade. Um, toward the beginning of the 2000s, he was, he's a professor, sorry, was a professor at the University of uh, North Carolina, Wilmington, um, a criminology professor. And um, during, he started out um, his professorial career um, as a, as a liberal political, uh, political liberal and an atheist and uh, had a conversion experience. He converted to Christianity and also um, uh, converted to being a conservative and um, was someone uh, who in a very sort of American style um, was very uh, brash and loud about his opinions. He was a columnist, I think for, for town hall and, and, and other, uh, other outlets over the years. Um, and also, you know, someone who engaged on social media, uh, would write for the newspaper and that sort of thing. And, um, he was, you know, ever since I be began at fire, uh, Mike was always sort of in a little bit of peril. He was on the tenure track, um, and the university of North Carolina Wilmington, um, denied him tenure, um, citing his outside, uh, writings, um, now, um, he engaged in a lawsuit and actually, um, at one point, uh, fires, uh, former president. And then he had left and, and joined the army during the, uh, Iraq war, um, and came back and was, uh, Mike's attorney, um, when he was suing, uh, to get tenure, um, and establish, um, that was David French, of course, he's, he's right. been on the podcast yeah, before. David French. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Work for the dispatch now. Yeah. Yeah. I left that out. And, um, so Mike had to sue UNC Wilmington um, to establish uh, that he that was an illegitimate reason to deny him tenure, and he succeeded. It's actually Adams versus UNC Wilmington is actually one of the probably the leading case um, on an issue, um, the issue called the Garcetti issue. But it basically, it's the issue of whether or not um, or to what extent public universities can control the speech of uh, professors uh, like they can other public employees. Um, so he, he fought that out, um, and, um, he had fought, you know, various other sort of battles with the UNCW. They were never really reconciled to having him there. Um, but they couldn't really get rid of him because he was widely cited and, and very successful and good as a professor. Um, and he won the court case, <laughs> yeah, he won the court case, which took something like four years. Right. So, um, he was a, he had become, you know, kind of a fixture there, but earlier this year, um, in the middle of the COVID stuff, he, he sent out a tweet that, um, 
he, he was uh, complaining about uh, North Carolina's restrictions on COVID. And he basically said uh, in the tweet that he was having some beers with friends and felt like a free man. And he said, Massa Koopa, let my people go. Um, and this led to, you know, sort of another um, eruption of outrage. And um, in this case, uh, they, they successfully um, pressured uh, UNCW, uh, which frankly probably didn't take a lot of pressure uh, to get them uh, to pressure Mike into taking early retirement. Um, so he, they were due to pay him, uh, you know, 500,000 plus dollars. Yeah, he was like 55 years old, right? Yeah, he was 55. So, I mean, it was a, you know, a big chunk of money, but you know, not necessarily like, you know, set for life, not, not set for life kind of money. Yeah. It's not going to get you to social security. No, I mean, not, you know, if you, it depends on how you live. Right. So, um, but a big chunk of money, but not, you know, uh, golden parachute level stuff. And on, unfortunately, um, you know, I, I had actually emailed Mike and, and others at fire and, and others I've talked to since it emailed. And, you know, I remember saying, Hey Mike, you know, I saw that you're negotiating retirement, you know, sorry to, to see it. I hope it's, you know, what you wanted or whatever. And he's like, well, we, you know, we should talk about it. Uh, let's, let's give me a call sometime. And I, yeah, you know, that's the same thing that happened to me. I reached out to him and he said, you know, let's talk on the phone, which, you know, was unexpected because we'd never communicated that way before, but, um, yeah, we did have a long talk. And I, and I had talked to, yeah. And you, you talked to Mike and I, I had talked to Mike and, and was, you know, friends with him. Not like I was hanging out at his house or anything all the time, but we were friends and, uh, you know, found out, um, that, uh, you know, he was dead of a gunshot wound. People were, you know, sending me this. They'd seen it on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, about a week or two later, I forget exactly when it was, uh, they, they ruled it a suicide, which is, um, you know, what I had suspected. But it uh, really brought home to me um, the, and I, I wrote about this on FIRE's website, um, and, uh, and I'd, you know, invite folks to read it. But it really brought home to me the um, the hidden but maybe not so hidden costs of what it means to actually go after someone's livelihood um, and their reputation in such an unrelenting way. I mean, Mike had basically been um, taking two decades of punishment and he, he seemed like one of those people who could happily take it, but you never, you never really know. Right. And, and so one of the points I wanted to make, um, you know, when writing about him was that you need to count the cost of what you're doing when you're engaging and when you're um, joining a cancel culture mob, when you when you're trying to get somebody ruined for what they said, not what they did, um, but what they said. And you need to realize that um, you never know what the result of that's going to be. But the predictable result of going after people's livelihood, their careers, their reputations like that is that some of them um, are going to sink into depression and, and some are going to take their own lives. And when you join that mob to do that, you need to be aware that you are taking on the moral responsibility of being a part of that. Um, and I, I don't think people really give enough thought uh, to the actual downstream effects. And I think social media is, uh, a, it, it's kind of a bad system for making people think through those because you can just basically throw your virtual Molotov cocktail at Mike's, you know, reputation, and then you never have to think about him again. But the aggregate 
uh, example or the aggregate effect of that on someone, um, even if all of those are protected. And I think that, you know, most, you know, protected speech. And I think that the vast majority of the, the vitriol that Mike, you know, almost certainly was protected speech, um, you know, just because it's protected by the constitution doesn't make it morally right. Um, and I, I don't think people think about the ramifications of that. And in this case, I think it's, it's pretty fair to say that Mike was, was canceled to death. Um, I lost a friend and, um, you know, I think the, you know, I, I'm, I'm sad, obviously it was, a, it was a hard thing to write, but I'm also sad for the folks who participated in that. And, and I, you know, I don't, I, I try to, you know, look, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Christian, right? I'm a sin. I, I recognize I'm a sinner like everyone else. And I don't think you have to be a, a Christian or religious of any kind to realize that, you know what, we all, um, have our own problems and we all uh, do things that are wrong and we should have some recognition of that. But, um, the idea of, of having a, you know, being part of a culture where you can ruin people and not even be aware of it. Um, and people can end up dead at the end of it. Um, because the consequences of what you've done are so divorced from, uh, the actual action, I think is, uh, morally a really risky and, um, sort of terrifying place to be. And the only solution to this is a cultural solution. People need to, uh, literally, you know, judge people. Um, you know, you look, you can judge people by what they say. Um, et cetera. But there needs to be, we need to come as a society to some kind of recognition that, um, you know, these things have real consequences um, for the people we're dealing with and that they are humans like we are and that they deserve the respect that we would accord a neighbor or friend. Um, yeah. I think it's important to remember that. Well, there's, a, and I think there's been Even so much debate. With, nobody's perfect, you know, well, but I think there's none of us are. Yeah, there's been so much debate about what actually is a canceling, what is cancel culture, what qualifies as a canceling. Um, I think for many of us, we just kind of know it in our gut when we see it. There's, a, It's very clear when someone's engaging in debate and criticism to try and win an argument. And when someone's trying to shut someone down or get their them to lose their job or ensure that they can never be a part of the public discourse again, I think we can all kind of tell when that line is crossed, even if it's otherwise kind of hard to define. Nick Christakis um, actually has a sort of working definition of cancel culture that I think is uh, is pretty useful. Um, he, he called it, and this was something he published on Twitter. He said, one, forming a mob. To, so it's per, can, by cancel culture, I mean, one, forming a mob to two, seek to get someone fired or disproportionately punished for three statements within the Overton window. Yeah, and and Robert actually in his Mike Adams speech, which I encourage everyone to uh, to read, and I and I Robert's great kind of uh, synopsis of it. Uh, I hope has, has kind of what everyone's appetite to read the full piece. Um, Robert, you also have kind of three examples of what qualifies. Yeah, I, I came up and 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 Nick, um, the Professor Christakis, I should say, uh, you know, um, and and John Rauch both um, informed sort of my thinking of what ex what's a as opposed to the culture, what's an example of a cancellation attempt and the, the things I came and, and I was thinking about this because of what happened with Mike and I, the three I came up were with, and this, again, this is a working thing. I, this is not uh, definitive, you know, necessarily, but is the aim of the 
person, the alleged canceller to silence or deplatform the target, um, as opposed to persuade him or others that he's wrong. Um, is the alleged canceller demanding the target be fired or otherwise punished for his expression rather than for his actions? And third, is the alleged canceller trying to get others to join in making the demands or participating in such a campaign? And I think if it's yes to all three, then I, you know, I would classify that as a cancellation attempt. So I, I tried to get one that doesn't, um, you know, uh, involve the judgments of where the Overton window stands. The Overton window, just for folks who don't know, is the idea that there's a certain sort of mainstream, a wide mainstream of opinion and, and things on either side of that are kind of unacceptable. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that even if you're trying to cancel, um, you know, David Duke, it doesn't make it not canceling. It might, it might reduce your, um, you know, it might justify what you're doing or you might decide it's worth it, um, but it doesn't mean you're not trying to cancel him. So, um, I, I think we're, we're going to grope towards a, a definition that, that work. I think there is one. It is tough though. And I think right now you're right, Nico. Most people can sort of tell whether or not this is a sincere disagreement kind of thing versus a, you know, cultural, um, you know, putting the arm on somebody culturally. Yeah. And Jonathan Rausch, who of course has been on It's a little like Justice Potter Stewart's obscenity definition. Uh, I know it when I see it. (laughs) I actually said that Greg and I were talking yesterday. I said the same thing. Uh, it had, it had, uh, elements of that. But, you know, Robert, you mentioned uh, religion. I'm not a religious person. I'm I'm probably uh, agnostic, if not atheist. But yesterday, um, someone sent around to the office uh, a short piece by Nick Cave, who I guess is a a, a musician, a musical artist. I'm not familiar with him, although I, I, I understand now that he is popular. And many years ago, he he lost a son in a tragic, I believe it was car accident. And since then he's been having this blog called the red hand files, uh, in which he responds to readers, uh, you know, questions often about, you know, tragedy in their life. Um, but the one he posted yesterday or recently was asking him, what do you think of cancel culture? Mm -hmm. And he had this great line in there Uh, he, you know, he begins by talking about mercy in the first three paragraphs. You know, and he talks about how tolerance allows the spirit of inquiry, the confidence to roam freely, to make mistakes, to self-correct, to be bold, to dare about doubt, and in the process uh, to chance upon new and more advanced ideas. But he said as well, addressing the correspondent, Francis, you've asked about cancel culture. He says, as far as I can see, cancel culture is mercy's antithesis. Political correctness has grown to become the unhappiest religion in the world. It's once honorable attempt to reimagine our society in a more equitable way now embodies all the worst aspects that religion has to offer and none of the beauty, moral certainty, self-righteousness shorn even of the capacity for redemption. It has become quite literally bad religion run amok. Now, Robert, you might, uh, you might take uh, umbrage with some of what he has to say about worst aspects of religion, but I thought that was, that was very insightful, his idea about how cancel culture is Murphy's antithesis. And, and within a cancel culture, there is no opportunity for redemption. And I don't know, regardless of whether you're religious or not, uh, whether any of us wants to live in a society without redemption. Um, I think that's a very, very good point and a very wise observation. Um, You know, it is it is a very unforgiving place. Um, And, um, you know, it's important for, um, you know, when you you hold these things as articles of faith, they start to take on the, um, you know, the aspects of religion, whether or not you, you see it that way. And I think that's, I think, you know, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't disagree. I don't think, you know, 
it's a uh, yeah. Well, um, we've talked about a lot during this this podcast, and um, you know, putting together show notes for this show will take me very long time. So I'm, we're going to get the episode up here very soon. Uh, I don't know that in the description I'll have show notes right now, but a lot of the stuff that we've discussed has been covered on Fire's website, or Google can can be your source there. I'll try and get show notes in the days to come. Uh, but I think we're going to end it there. Sam and Robert, I really appreciate you two taking the time with me, especially on such a busy day. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak uh, by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, uh, liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast, and emailing us feedback. Uh, I try and respond to all the email correspondence I get. And email us at so to speak at thefire.org. Again, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. That is the single best way to help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks again for listening.